Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We're coming to you from the Old Capitol Museum on the central campus at the University of Iowa and glad to have you all with us today for a program on the language of the brain. Scientific and medical advances of recent decades have led to previously unimaginable revelations about the human body's innermost secrets and some of the richest areas of study, as you might imagine, are in the brain. In this four-part series, we'll be learning about research into neurological disorders and some of the recent advances that are making real differences in people's lives. We'll talk about the aging mind and brain, what changes we should expect as a part of normal aging, and what sorts of diminishments in brain capacity may be stalled or prevented as we age. And we'll venture into the fascinating field of artificial intelligence. But we open this series with a discussion about brain development, and I'm very happy to have these two guests with us this afternoon. Just to my left is Joshua Weiner from the UI Department of Biology. Thanks for coming this afternoon, Josh. Thank you, Josh. And Mark Bloomberg is, uh, is our other guest, and he's from the UI Department of Psychology. So thank you for being here. Thank you. So Josh, I'd like to start with you. Um, as the starting point for everything else in this program, I'd like to learn a little bit about normal brain development. Where do we begin? Well, you begin very early in the embryo. So actually, once the egg is fertilized within, I think in humans, I don't study humans as we mentioned, but in humans, it's about three to four weeks. You already have the neural tube, which is the embryonic structure that will give rise to the brain and the spinal cord. And that's already formed. So very early, by the end of the first month, you already have a nervous system. And by the end of the first trimester, you already have a brain that resembles a human brain in that it has a very large cerebral cortex, the front part of the brain, which is particularly large in humans. Mm -hmm. And um, there are some studies that suggest there's already electrical activity occurring in the brain at that point. And that's generally how the brain works, is through electrical activity between brain cells. Mm -hmm. what, what is the brain made of? Uh, <laughs> that's good. The brain is made of cells, like everything else in the body. Um, this was established in the uh, middle 1800s. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, for a long time, it's interesting, there, is, there was a debate about whether the brain was made up of cells as the rest of the body is. And that's because brain cells, which are called neurons, have a very unique shape, or very many unique shapes. They have a sort of cell body region, which looks like other cells, which are kind of round or square. But then it has these very long stretches that go out from one side and out from the other side. And these are uh, sort of like wires or cables through which neurons communicate with each other. And that's really what makes the brain unique, is that these cells form contacts with each other. They talk to each other through these contacts. And other cells in the body don't really do that to the same extent. They tend to release hormones into the bloodstream, which go everywhere. But the nervous system has a point-to-point -point wiring that allows it to actually transmit information in a, a more interesting way, I think, than many other tissues in the body. Um, so the brain is made up of these cells. And these cells are born in the brain. And there's a couple interesting things about how the brain develops uh, that, that might not be immediately obvious. One is that um, nearly half of all the cells that are born in the brain during development actually will die. So the brain, our brains at least, mammalian brains, mm -hmm. there are organisms with simpler brains that don't do this as much, but mammalian brains actually make twice as many neurons as they will need. And then as these neurons make connections with each other, the ones that don't make the right connections or don't get a connection or in other ways are unhappy or unhealthy are eliminated. And so this is sort of a theme, I think, in, in not only the early development of the brain in terms of the number of cells, but the number of connections, that you actually make more cells and make more connections than you need, and you winnow these away as the brain develops and as the brain essentially learns what the correct connections are and pathways are. 
uh, during development. And is this winnowing away different in every single individual? Yes, this would be different in every individual, mm -hmm. Mark would agree. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, some of the mechanisms that control it are similar. Um, but certainly this is different in, in all individuals. And this is something that, you know, we, we think about learning and developing as primarily forming connections. So these connections are called synapses, where neurons contact each other. So just colloquially, you all think about learning new things, forming new synapses, you even hear people say that. But, uh, and that, of course, does occur. But a large part of maturation and learning is actually the removal of excess synapses. Hmm. So if you look at the density of connections in an infant, it's actually higher than it is in a 10-year-old. Hmm. So during that process, with what that child is actually doing, or the developing animal, is actually removing some of the connections that it doesn't need so mm -hmm. that the existing ones, presumably, so the existing ones, uh, can function um, more efficiently. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, not just, it's not just building up the brain, there's also this pattern of loss in the brain. Mm -hmm. And this pattern of, of pruning away, it's actually called pruning, pruning away these connections, uh, is believed to be disturbed in some neurodevelopmental disorders, and this may be one reason why these disorders occur. Mm. Although I think it's fair to say we don't really understand how that works. Mm -hmm. But yeah, elaborate on that a little bit. Some of the mm. developmental disorders that, that may, if you think of one that, that is in a, a new, newborn child has some sort of developmental problem. Well, I think one that you, know, you hear a lot about is uh, autism <laughs> recently, because there's a lot of uh, indication that the rates of autism may be going up. Um, it's actually, I think, unclear how much of that is due to increased diagnosis. There are a lot of children being diagnosed as, as autistic or autism spectrum disorder that previously would have been given some other diagnosis or, in fact, even ignored. Mm -hmm. um, so um, we can talk about that a little bit. And, um, you know, it's very difficult to know what actually causes such a disorder because for obvious reasons, we don't really get to look inside of autistic children's brains. These children, autism is not a lethal disease. These children still uh, grow up otherwise normally, uh, physically normally in many cases. And so you can't get the tissue to look at it. Um, and so we have to model, we can model these diseases in animals. Mm -hmm. So um, we can use mice as the common organism. And you may not think that mice are very similar to humans, but in fact, they actually have all of the same brain regions. So all of the mammals um, have very similar looking brains mm -hmm. to, to a first approximation. Um, and so you um, can uh, look at models of autism in mice. There are mice that have mutations in genes that cause them to exhibit behaviors that are somewhat similar, if you squint, to, uh, to human autism. And so we can study it that way. In the few cases where um, we've looked at autistic brains, or scientists have looked at autistic brains, it's the case where an autistic child has an accident or dies in some other way and the brain is donated. Um, what you actually see is not a reduction in the density of connections, but actually too many connections. Uh, the synapses form primarily on these structures called dendritic spines, and these spines are actually more prevalent in the brains that have been examined. There's also a recent study showing that there's some disorganization of um, the arrangement of cells, of neurons, in the cerebral cortex of autistic children. So something goes wrong with the way the neurons connect with each other and perhaps the way they prune connections. Mm -hmm. um, and so this may be a problem. If, if, if an autistic child has, has too many connections, you know, you can sort of guess that it's difficult perhaps for them to kind of focus on mm -hmm. external sensory information that's coming in. There's maybe a lot of noise 
going on internally in these uh, in these uh, networks, and so that may be one reason. Mm -hmm. But I mean, again, I, I think it's really too early to say that we have any firm understanding of how that works. Sure, sure. Well, let me turn to you, Mark mm -hmm. Bloomberg. So we've been talking to a biologist about brain development. Mm -hmm. How is the conversation different when we talk to a psychologist? Well, on, on, the, on the basics, not too much. So there's, there's a remarkable degree of overlap between a psychologist like myself and a biologist like Josh. So um, you know, in psychology, we tend to focus more on the behavioral side of things. But when, for those of us like myself, we're neuroscientists, we're interested in understanding the brain, Many of the, the, there's just a high degree of overlap with the sorts of things that we'd be doing. You know, in fact, we collaborate because we have so much overlap. And you know, so, if you're interested in brain de development, you're interested in behavioral development, you basically have to explore all the various things that are going on that can be contributing to the either the diversity of, of, of you know within individuals across and within a species or the diversity of cross, across species. We're all basically asking the same the same types of questions. My focus is more. Uh, whereas, um, you know, I, there are psychologists who study embryology, right? But I, most, of, I, most of my work is done in a postnatal uh, environment with, uh, with rats and mice mm -hmm. also. Mm -hmm. So I don't study humans very much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but there, you can make extrapolations from what you, what you see in the research you're doing with the yeah, rats and mice. Yeah, the are sort of interesting too, so I do, I do try to, uh, but, you know, for understanding basic mechanisms and really being able to get experimental control over the sorts of things we want to do, we can't do that in humans very well, especially with the types of questions that right. we try to answer. Well, you mentioned um, diversity a, a, a moment ago um, in what might be considered normal. I'm wondering what kind of latitude there is in, in what we would consider normal. A, a normal population uh, group, a, if we think of normal brain function, how much variation can there be from person to person well, before you fall out of that? Remarkable <laughs> variation. If you just look around yeah. the room, there's remarkable variation. Yeah, Nobody yeah. looks alike and everybody yeah. is, is very different. And this has a lot to do with what Josh was talking about with respect to what happened, not only in our bodies, but in our brains as well. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of variety in terms of how these various neurons hook up with one another. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there's a incredible amount of lack of variety. I mean, yeah. the same basic parts of the brain connect to the same basic parts of the brain. It's true in humans, it's true in mice, it's true in rats. In fact, if you look at a rat brain and you look at a human brain, all the same parts are connecting to all of the other same parts, right? So there's a tremendous amount of cross-species um, lack of variability or orderliness in the way that these structures are, are wired up. At the same time, we all have very, very different experiences in terms of within the embryo, we have different experiences. As we're born, we have different experiences. And these molecular experiences and broader social experiences have tremendous uh, impact on who we are. Yeah. Um, that said, you know, there's another side of this. So people tend to focus on two different aspects of, of this issue of uh, what's called robustness versus variability. The robust side is, uh, we, yeah, we're different, but we're so alike, right? There's just so much within cross species, you know, dogs tend to bark and we tend to talk, or, uh, you know, we walk on two legs and dogs walk on four legs. So they're, and all of them do, right? Mm -hmm. But there's also a tremendous amount of plasticity. So the other side of robustness is this idea that, that we have a lot of plasticity, especially when we're young, um, when, when, we, when we need it a little bit more, when we are trying to figure out how our bodies work. And that plasticity is critical um, and can be extreme. And so, for example, there are dogs, there have been many animals that have been born without, you know, with legs. Uh, they were just born with hind legs. There's an incredible boxer that, uh, that you might have seen on YouTube. It made its way around Facebook. Uh, it was a boxer born without hind legs. I'd never seen this before. And it was running on its four legs without any hind legs. And it looks like a dog from the, 
you look at the face, but the whole body has been remodeled so that the animal can walk on its forelegs. And you look at animals that lack forelegs and they're standing upright. And there's a famous dog in Oklahoma City called Faith. She's still around. And she walked, she grew into her deformity, right? She, she had a curved spine, she shifted her body weight, and she walks beautifully upright on her two hind legs. And so she accomplished in one lifetime one of what is supposed to be one of the great accomplishments of human evolution in one lifetime. So that's an incredible amount of plasticity that needs to be explained as well. So we have these two competing issues. Some people focus on the robustness and they say, oh, everything's innate. And other people focus on the other side and say that there's nothing that's innate. But of course, you know, the believing this idea issue of what it means for something to be innate. Mm -hmm. there, is, there are these two aspects to biology and behavior that have to be explained, and that's what we try to understand in our work. Mm -hmm. and, and there's actually, I mean, I was just talking to a colleague who's a pediatric neurologist the other day, um, and um, he was presenting this, this case of a family where there was a, a gene mutation that they had cloned. And the um, turns out that many members of this family that are affected have a large part of their brain missing. They, they can see this when they do MRI scans or CT scans. And these people are completely normal. So the children are honor students and completely high functioning. One of the uncles was an engineer. Mm -hmm. And so this is the same kind of thing also during embryogenesis. You can have a defect in the brain, a large part of it missing. But if the, if the fetus and then the baby grows up with this part missing, they're able to rewire around the, the defect, and they can actually function completely normally. It's a huge amount of plasticity. And you know, similar things happen with uh, hydrocephalics, you know, what used to be called water on the brain, where you have tremendous growth of these, the, the, what are called the ventricles, which contain this fluid that is critical for the functioning of our brain. But if there's too much fluid, it compresses the brain from inside the skull, and the cerebral cortex can become exceedingly thin. Normally it is of one thickness, but in, these, in, in, in people who have hydrocephaly, it can be extremely thin, and yet you would, there's, there's no obvious you know, um, problem with them in terms of behavior and intelligence or anything else that they do. So again, you know, there is this incredible amount of uh, reserve of plasticity that we have that we can deal with as mm -hmm. we, uh, and, it's, and it's true throughout life to a large extent as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, so then um, uh, in those cases where uh, an adaptation or the necessary plasticity hasn't provided the kind of accommodation a person would need in order to function well, so there's a developmental disorder, there's, there's something that's not working right in the brain. Um, what, what are you researching to, uh, is it a molecular level intervention, a genetic level um, adjustment that one would hope to make in order to encourage <laughs> improvement there? I mean, it's, yeah, it's difficult uh, to say because um, one, you know, one difficulty of the brain is it is encased in the skull. Yeah. This is a good thing for most of us because uh, we bump our heads from time to time. Um, but you can't get in there, okay? You can't, it's very difficult to get in there to make any manipulation. Mm -hmm. And there's a problem also with drugs and chemicals, which are that many of them don't make it into the brain because there's something called the blood-brain barrier. And this is a huge problem for finding new drugs, actually. They often will find drugs by putting them on neurons in a dish, and they work just fine. Mm -hmm. But the problem is you can't get them into the brain mm -hmm. because there are mechanisms to keep bad stuff out. Um, it's, it's difficult to say. I think in some cases, if, you, if there are disorders, and there are disorders where there are single genes that are associated with that disorder, there's a mutation in that gene that can cause that disorder. 
Uh, an example is, is one called Rett syndrome, which is uh, R-E-T-T, which is often referred to as a female autism. So autism is four times more prevalent in, in males than in, in, than in females. There's a version with autistic features called Rett syndrome. This is caused by a mutation in a single gene. We know what the gene is. And in a mouse model of that, disorder where they've removed the gene and then later in development put it back, you actually get a rescue of some of the behavioral mm -hmm. phenotypes, the behavioral um, aspects. So it's possible. It is possible. We don't know how to do that right now safely mm -hmm. in humans. And again, neither of us are doctors, so we can't really speak <laughs> from the clinical aspect of this. Um, but you know, pr presumably that is something that could be done. Um, it's... Um, but I, there's also, you know, a lot of um, effective behavioral Interventions. Mm -hmm. I know in autism and other disorders, you can have huge uh, improvements due to behavioral interventions. Yeah. I, so th this is so Josh and I sort of represent these two different ways of coming at a problem. And so very often, you know, the, the caricature would be that if uh, we, we were faced with a problem, who's going to look first at the genetics, and I'm going to look first at, at sort of the system as a whole. And um, it's sort of just the way we're trained and the way we think about the world. So whenever I, I always try to temper the tendency to go straight to genetics by reminding people that, uh, um, that there's, you know, we often think about the difference, for example, between males and females. You know, it's, it's, it's innate because it's innate, it must be genetic or something like that would be a very simplified argument. But it's very important to remember that crocodiles and turtles and all sorts of other animals like them um, they're clear males and females. They, they have sex like males and females are supposed to. They give birth. The females give birth to, and yet there are no genetic differences between the males and the females. The differences between them are completely determined by the temperature of the eggs when they are being incubated. So there are no genetic differences at all. It's evolutionarily important. The, the important thing is that the system is the same in, these, in, a, in a turtle as it is in us when it comes to making males and females, mm -hmm. except for what triggers the cascade that leads to males and females. It could be chromosomal in us, XX if you're a female, XY if you're a male. And in those animals, there are no chromosomal differences. It's just warm temperatures or cold temperatures. And I'd, so the, the way to think about it is that very often genetic and environmental influences on a developing system can be interchangeable. You can use a genetic mechanism. Sometimes you can use a non-genetic mechanism. But either one, as long as you as long as you get it done, it really doesn't matter how you get it done. As long as it's as long as it's something that can be reliably transduced across generations, and temperatures always vary in beaches where turtle eggs are laid, and so there's no problem uh, with with making that happen. We'll see what happens with global warming and turtles, mm -hmm. but that's another story. But, you know, I think it's important to note um, that I mean, we were talking about this before. <laughs> we're joking about this. That, you know, whenever you see something set up in science or maybe anything where it's, it's either this or this, and there are these warring camps, and they're always fighting about, like, nature-nurture, right? So, I mean, nature would be genes, nurture is environment. A lot of people disagree about how important those things are. The answer is always both, okay? Always. I mean, th there's a debate for 10 years, and then, oops, the answer is both. And yet, every time, we still get mad at each other. Um, I, Mark and I do, at least. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and so it's the same case here. And, and, the, and I want to point out that the disorder I referred to before, Rett syndrome, where there is a particular gene, that is the, the rarity. The vast majority of things that you would want to change about the cognitive abilities of a person, all of the things that, that, that annoy my wife, for example, are, are not likely to be changed by a single gene. These are very, very complicated things, and there's really no way to fix them in that kind of sense. Um, and so, you know, I think... Um, it's a it's a very complicated issue, and you don't you don't want I wouldn't want people to think that um, 
their you know genetic component is all there is mm -hmm. to um, the kind of person they're going to be because it isn't true. And mm -hmm. um, even though things like IQ have a fairly high heritability quote, uh, quotient, which means that a lot of the variability in IQ could be ascribed to genetics, mm -hmm. so does vocabulary size. And yet we don't know any words in the womb, right? So we only learn words later. So clearly what, what you're inheriting is some sort of propensity or um, proclivity towards certain abilities, but it doesn't mean that people who don't inherit that, whatever it is, we don't know what it is, um, you know, that doesn't mean that if you don't study your vocabulary and work on it, you can't have an amazing vocabulary that's much greater than someone with that, yeah. that came from that family. So it just, you know, it, it's real, always both, I think. Mm -hmm. Is there some particularly tantalizing thing each of you are working on in your own individual research that, that you're you think will lead you to some new understanding of this brain development. Is there is there something you're focusing on now that... Yeah. Uh, sure, of course. All of <laughs> of course. <laughs> Everything we do is great. Well, so what I, what I, what I, what I study is, uh, I study the sleep development. I'm interested in sleep. And I'm interested in how sleep contributes to our, to the development of our, of our ability to, just to take a very crude example, you can close your eyes and you can move your fingers and you can feel your fingers moving, right? You have very clear maps in your brain of all these different parts of your body. Where do they come from? And so what I study is a very strange behavior that animals make. You've probably seen them. Uh, if you have babies or dogs or cats when they're sleeping and these twitches that they make when they're, when they're in what's called REM sleep. And, the, and the, the old tale, you know, about it is that you know, if you see a dog twitching in its sleep, it's chasing, chasing rabbits. Well, that we, we're pretty sure that that's not true. We're not, they're not chasing rabbits. The, the thing is that there's a part of your brain that's completely independent of where you dream that's producing these movements. And what we think is that these movements, which in rat pups and also in humans, occur hundreds of thousands of times every day. And that it's, it's a lot. We just don't pay a lot of attention to it. What you're doing or what we're doing when we're, when we're twitching is we're exploring our limbs. That's what makes Faith the dog able to learn how to walk on two legs. She explored the body she had. And so what you do is you, you twitch and you send out a signal to that muscle and you receive information about that muscle, okay, or that movement, and you map your brain. You update your, your brain relationship. And through this process of twitching and moving, you explore the body that you have been born with, right? And so through that way, you sort of bootstrap your nervous system. And it also helps you, of course, when you get older and grow. As you grow, your limbs are getting bigger. You get more muscle, you gain more fat, you lose some fat, you lose a limb. All of these things change, and you have to be able to adapt to this. You need to calibrate your system throughout your entire life. And that's what we think sleep is important for. So we're in the process now of taking this, where we've done this basic work in developing rats and mice, and now we're exporting it into humans, and humans also across the lifespan to see what role that these things uh, that these movements play in, in, wow. in keeping the, the whole system working. Yeah, properly. yeah, fascinating. And can we get a little peek into what you're working on? Yeah, so um, what my lab studies is actually uh, how neurons form connections during development. Um, a lot of this is happening in the fetus or in the young uh, baby. And we do this in mice as a model for, for humans. And so we know that neurons contact each other using special molecules that are sticky, and they... Uh, these sticky molecules bind only to other sticky molecules. They're kind of like a specific kind of Velcro. One time, type of Velcro will only bind another. And so we're studying a large family of these and trying to understand how the diversity of this family, and we know that this family can create 
uh, 20 to 30,000 kinds of Velcro. Is that enough to specify certain cells forming connections with each other, and does that go uh, wrong in certain disorders? And so the class of molecules we study actually have been implicated in autism and some other disorders, and so we don't have a good basic understanding of how they work, mm -hmm. and so that's what we're trying to, to do in our lab. Wow. I'm so grateful you would both come here this afternoon to, to share this with us. And um, for all of you listening, um, this is the first segment of a four-part series on the language of the brain. And our guests this afternoon in this segment have been uh, Josh Weiner, just next to me here, and Mark Bloomberg. So thank you. And I hope you'll join us next time for a discussion of neurological disorders, particularly epilepsy and stroke, and some of the advancements in treatments that are making real differences in people's lives. Uh, all World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr, and for International Programs, thank you very much for listening. Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're broadcasting from the beautiful Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on the Central Campus this afternoon. This is part two of a four-part series on the language of the brain. In the first part of this series, we focused on brain development, and in this segment, we'll talk about some neurological disorders that affect millions of Americans every year, and of course, many millions more around the world, epilepsy and stroke. Uh, my guests are Dr. Matthew Howard from the University of Iowa Department of Neurosurgery, just next to me here. Thanks, Matt. Pleasure. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the far end, we have Tammy Lensing. Uh, she's a patient of Dr. Howard's and has graciously agreed to tell us a little bit about her experience with epilepsy. Thank you, Tammy, for coming. Mm -hmm. And in the middle here, we have Dr. Enrique Leira, uh, who is uh, going to talk with us uh, this afternoon about uh, stroke. And he's from the University of Iowa Department of Neurology. So thank you all for coming. Pleasure. Thanks Pleasure for to having have you here. Uh, so, Matt, I'd like to go to you first, and uh, we've talked a little bit about brain development, but can you tell us from your point of view, uh, what causes neurological disorders to occur? Uh, there's a wide range of disorders that can cause uh, dysfunction in the nervous system. So the nervous system, we think about the brain, spinal cord, and peripheral nerves. And uh, there are so many different uh, things that can affect those structures that you, you, when you're a clinician, you think about it in, in, a, in a systematic way. And one way that, that you do that, particularly when you're first learning how to take care of patients who have neurologic disorders, is to uh, put them in broad categories. So congenital, infectious, neoplastic, metabolic, demyelinating, traumatic. And you just go through this, this, uh, this list, and you're, you see a particular patient has a neurologic disorder, and you try to figure out what that etiology of those various groups it falls into, and then where the problem is in, in the neurologic system. But it's a very big uh, aspect of, of medicine, uh, neurologic disorders. Mm -hmm. And actually, uh, are caught, so there, there are generally two types of specialists who take care of patients with neurologic problems. One is the neurologist, and one is the neurosurgeon. And um, Dr. Lear takes care of actually a lot more patients with neurologic disorders than I do as a neurosurgeon because the neurosurgeons tend to take care of people who need uh, surgical treatment for their mm -hmm. neurological problem. Uh -huh. Well, uh, one of the reasons we particularly wanted to have you on the program today was to talk about epilepsy, which I know is, is you know, uh, a huge factor in the lives of many, many people. I know there have been advances made over the years, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about what epilepsy looks like, what, what it is as a disease? And it is a very common problem. In fact, it might be about the most 
common in, t in terms of the incidence of a, of a person who's born and go through the course of their life, uh, the odds of you having a neurologic disorder of some sort, probably epilepsy would be the most common when you consider febrile seizures, for example. So the incidence of febrile seizures, uh, children who are about a year or so, uh, is extremely common, maybe 10% or, or, so lots and lots of patients have those seizures. Those tend to be uh, transient and temporary, and don't cause any problems over the long run. But there are uh, as many as 1% of Americans who have intractable seizures, meaning that uh, they, they're past that stage where you have these transient problems uh, when you're a neonate but, or a child, but have persistent seizures. And so epilepsy is very, very common. And uh, there are different kinds. Mm -hmm. There are, for instance, complex partial seizures where the epilepsy originates in one localized area of the brain and uh, then there are generalized seizures, the kinds of things you see in movies that are very, very scary where people are thrashing their limbs about. But uh, the, the key there is, is to have a, a doctor assess what your neurologic, uh, what type of epilepsy you have, put you on the appropriate medication. And most patients will have their epilepsy uh, condition well-controlled medications, but a subset of those patients won't and it's very, very important to find out whether there are other treatments that, that you might benefit from if you fall into that category. Sure, sure. Well, I was talking with Tammy before we, we began the program today, and I know that she did have a surgical intervention, and you were her, uh, her surgeon. Um, I wonder if you can tell us, before we hear Tammy's own story, what kind of surgery um, uh, can help correct uh, this, this part of the brain that, that it, um, causes seizures? There are a variety of surgical procedures that can be performed uh, to help patients who have failed medical management for their epilepsy. The most common type of operation is called a temporal resection, and that's what Tammy had. The, uh, the way that we uh, discuss this with patients and their patient's family and describe the, the whole sequence is that, again, there are a lot of patients with seizures, most patients have their epilepsy well-controlled medication, but there's a certain percentage that don't. There are ways of determining where those seizures are coming from. And if we can determine that your seizures are coming from the temporal lobe, then there's a very good chance that we could uh, eliminate those seizures with a surgical resection. So the seizure-free outcome in a perfect patient who has just the right combination of findings related to temporal lobe epilepsy, it's about 70 to 80%. So this is extremely high compared to, say, 5% or less for med continued medical management trying different, different mm -hmm. medicines. So uh, there's a, a sequence of steps that we go through. This is all in collaboration with our neurology colleagues who are experts in, in determining first managing the seizures and hopefully controlling them with medicines. But if, if they're not controlled, they're the experts at figuring out where in the brain those seizures are coming from. And then as surgeons, we have uh, quite refined techniques that are, that are safe and effective to go in, identify with even finer resolution where the abnormal tissue is, remove it, and in most cases don't cause any problems, no neurologic deficits, and then you can get uh, remarkable outcomes like, like Tammy. Does the, does the diseased tissue look different to the, to the naked eye, to a surgeon's eye, than any other tissue? 
Typically, when you look at it during surgery, it doesn't look any different than normal brain tissue. But when you look at it under the microscope, you can, you can find uh, uh, abnormalities that are typical for patients who've had chronic seizures. Because chronic seizures, you have this storm of abnormal electrical activity that's happening very frequently year after year. You'll, you'll see some structural changes in the brain. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I don't know if you'd like to add anything at this point, Dr. Leera, before we go to Tammy. No, please go Okay. So, so Tammy, um, thank you for coming this afternoon. I, I know it'll be really um, instructive for all of us to hear a little bit about what your uh, history has been with epilepsy. When I was five months old in January of 1978, I had a fall as a child where I hit my head and had a epidural hematoma bleed at that time where they did a oral procedure and just before that surgery is when I had my very first seizure, which um, was what brought them to do the procedure at that time. And then I had no known seizures for until Christmas Day of 1996 when I had a grand mal seizure when I was a sophomore in college and was home for Christmas vacation. And then had another grand mal seizure again in April of 1997 at which time I was started on medication at a low dose to see if that would control it. Um, that was not able to. I was having two to four um, smaller seizures at that point in time, and over the years, it would they would ramp up to where I would have more and more every year. They would increase my dosage and my medications. We tried five different medications and multiple different combinations and without success to the point where before I came to have surgery, I was having 15 to 18 seizures per month. I had started to lose awareness periodically where I didn't realize what was going on for several seconds and then would jump back into what I was doing and also starting to lose urinary function um, Without warning, I would have frequent auras or it would feel like somebody was watching me or you get nauseated, just different symptoms where there were the smaller seizures occurring. And it was my neurologist where I was at at that point that directed me here to the University of Iowa and to Dr. Howard, um, where we did a bunch of testing and he determined that I was definitely fit for the surgery. Uh, we did surgery in May 23rd of 2006, and that morning was the day I had my last seizure. I've been seizure-free ever since. Uh, significantly smaller dosage, just a fraction of the medication that I was on prior to. So I've been able to work as an inpatient physical therapist, um, which I wasn't wouldn't have been able to continue to do with the losing of awareness because it would be unsafe for my patients to be working with them. Wow. So that's the kind of success that you can have in the patient who fits those very close parameters and has a successful surgery. We have, um, in patients who have this temporal lobe focus, the seizure-free outcomes are, are very, very high. Mm -hmm. uh, is a particularly special case, so uh, in person because uh, Dr. Lara is, <laughs> it's actually kind of a funny show, but <laughs> right now in a, in a medical kind of way, is uh, he's gonna be talking about stroke. And last, I, almost a year ago, my mother was here from the East Coast and had a stroke. Mm. 
and Dr. Uh, Enrique Lear provided excellent care on the neurology side, but Tammy took care of my mother from, from the physical therapy side. So, uh, so it was all that more uh, special to know that you know our team, and it's a total team effort. There's a lot on the surgical side, the medical side, big group of people who are highly trained. And to help people with epilepsy be able to not worry about suddenly losing awareness and and then being able to pursue these things, and then to have this come back and help my mother yeah. was really special. Yeah, yeah, that is great. One other question regarding all of these many, many seizures throughout your life. Did that affect your overall ability to think? I mean, when you were not having a seizure, had you suffered damage uh, to the other parts of your brain? Uh, do you know uh, Matt and uh, Dr. Lara? Would, would the seizures have uh, well, caused? patients with epilepsy have a normal brain function in between the episodes. Wow. But occasionally they don't, and uh, for a number of reasons, including the, the effects of medication. Yeah. Or if the seizures are frequent enough, they can leave some uh, aftermath dysfunction in the brain where they don't completely go back to normal. Yeah, yeah. Is there a connection between epilepsy and stroke, since we're headed in the direction no, of No, really, there are two different neurological oh. disorders, but very, very common. Uh, epilepsy is the poster child of an uh, episodic neurological disorder that means that occurs at some point of time with uh, catastrophic, potentially catastrophic consequences, but patients can go back to normal. But stroke is a, is a one-time event. It's, it's, a, it's a sudden onset of, of a neurological dysfunction from vascular origin. Mm -hmm. That means from lack of blood supply to the brain, if it is an ischemic stroke, or due to a rupture of a blood vessel, if it is a hemorrhagic stroke. Mm -hmm. and do we know what causes a stroke? Well, there is a variety of things that can produce that clot that occludes the, the blood vessel and, and produces the ischemic stroke. The, the list is very long, but they are dividing in three major categories. Either it's a problem with the arteries, like atherosclerosis is the most common thing in our society, or a problem with a clot form in the heart, or a problem with the blood itself, like the blood is clotting more rapidly or, or more intensely than it should. Mm -hmm. So other than some of the things many of us are aware of now, like having somewhat clogged arteries, um, apart from that, is there any way to predict who will have a stroke or at what point they may have one? Yeah, certainly, because a stroke is it is a random event, but in many ways is not. There are patients that are at risk of a stroke, at higher risk of a stroke than others. Uh, of course, the most important risk factor is having had a stroke already. That is the biggest risk category. But we know that many of the conditions uh, associated with uh, sedentary lifestyle, as well as hypertension, uh, diabetes, and, and obesity, and smoking, they're all risk factors that increase the risk of having a stroke. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how many patients um, come to the University of Iowa? I'm not asking for a specific number, but you know, um, I know that we're one of the sort of stroke net hospitals. Perhaps you can tell us what that means uh, related to the well, NIH. The number in the country is we are now up to 800,000 strokes per year in the United States. And that is a number that rather than get better is actually increasing on a yearly basis because as the population gets older, you're more likely to, um, to get a stroke during, during your lifetime. It's a consequence of, of actually aging of the population. So that means that every 40 seconds, someone is having a stroke. And every four minutes, someone dies from a stroke. <laughs> it's the fourth cause of death in this country, but most importantly, it's the first cause of disability. So you're much more likely to survive a stroke and be disabled from it. So uh, for, 
besides the obvious uh, human suffering that goes with the stroke, there is a, a big cost for society because those pa patients that have a stroke often are not able to go to their previous life and work. And then other people have to work for them yeah. from the physical therapy or occupational mm -hmm. therapy or assistance service to get them back in track. Sure. So incredible cost for society. Mm. What are the warning signs someone should be aware of? Well, it's, it's good that you asked this question because May is Stroke Awareness Month. Ah, good. <laughs> and, and, and it's important that, uh, and, and we keep uh, explaining to, to the population in general, but also those patients that are at higher risk of a stroke, the ones that we, we, we named before. It's important for, for patients and family members and caregivers to recognize the signs. So the key word is sudden. A stroke is something that one moment you don't have it, and the next moment it has occurred, for the most part. And sudden onset of a neurological deficit. That means a lack of function. So it can be sudden weakness, sudden numbness, sudden speech problems, sudden visual disturbance. The symptoms vary depending what side of the, or part of the brain is affected, but the key feature is sudden and lack of function. Okay. Also, an unusual headache, could be a, a warning sign of a hemorrhagic stroke. The ones that Dr. Howard uh, often takes like an, an aneurysm mm -hmm. rupture. Uh, but the ischemic strokes for the most part don't hurt. And that actually um, works against uh, us because patients are much more likely to report to the emergency room if they hurt, like having a, a, a crossing chest pain and a heart attack. And, and they take longer to when they have negative symptoms or lack of function. So it's very important to recognize those signs because the treatments for strokes are time dependent. So we have treatments for it, and we know that the outcome depends on how soon the treatment is applied. So uh, to give you a, a number, every uh, minute uh, counts with a stroke, and the, the rate of neuronal or brain cell loss with a stroke is 1.9 million neurons per minute. Wow. So every minute counts. Mm -hmm. So you told me that there was a phrase, uh, time is brain. Exactly, and, and, that, and we've been talking about time is brain for many years, but only until recently we can actually say how much time for how much brain. So every minute is 1.9 million neurons. Right. So uh, of course we have a lot of neurons in the brain, like the previous speakers uh, explained, but uh, that explains why the outcome of the patients is going to be influenced by how soon the treatment is applied. You know, I've heard that if someone uh, can get to the hospital very, very quickly after uh, what appears to be a stroke has occurred, there are things you can do right away that, that are likely to make the outcome better for that patient. Exactly. What kinds of interventions can you do at that point? Well, the treatment that has been, the only treatment that has been proven to work is this clot-busting medicine called TPA, which fortunately can be given in most hospitals as long as they have a CAT scan they have the medicine in the storage, and they have to, the expertise to give it. Often the expertise is not available in most of the hospitals in, in small towns in Iowa, but fortunately we have a 24-7 service at, at the university and other stroke centers where the, the doctors at those small hospitals, they get in the phone with us, and sometimes through a telemedicine yeah. robot discuss the case we can examine the patient as well and advise to give the treatment or not. Uh, so it's very important to report when someone is suspect of having a stroke to show up in the closest 
uh, emergency room that is uh, stroke ready mm. uh, or stroke capable and those hospitals are actually li listed in the in the website of the department of Iowa Department mm. of Public Health so just for anyone who may be listening to this discussion if you suspect something may have happened, may be happening to you, don't wait until Monday morning to call the doctor's office. Oh, absolutely. Get yourself right to the emergency room. The, the best thing you can do for the, for the patient or your loved one is to call 911. Uh, this is a real emergency. It's a time-dependent one. We know that it's, it's important not to get the patient in a private car for a number of reasons. One of them is the patient can deteriorate in the transport to the hospital. But also, you are taking care faster when you arrive by ambulance than you, when you arrive by private car, and there is data to support that. And since time is of the essence, this is a, a reasonable use of the, of the uh, paramedic system. Oh, so that's a very important tip. I hadn't heard that before. You're wiser to use an ambulance, much, much smarter to use an ambulance Absolutely. than to rely on yourself to get the ill person there. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about what it means for the University of Iowa hospitals to have a, a stroke uh, net center uh, related to this NIH? So the, um, it's, it's very important to advance new treatments in stroke, uh, both for prevention of stroke, patients at risk, for treatment of the stroke itself, so we're looking for additional treatments in addition to this called busting medicine, or for recovery of the stroke. But doing stroke trials is very uh, time-consuming for the doctors, which have a lot of uh, other things and, and priorities. and. Uh, and the efficiency of doing clinical trials has been an issue for the National Institute of Health. So they came up last year with a new initiative where in order to be efficient in doing clinical trials in, in an appropriate way and fast, they are sponsoring a national network for stroke research, uh, which has a coordinating center at the University of Cincinnati and 25 regional structures. And the University of Iowa, uh, was uh, awarded one of these structures, so we are one of these regional coordinating centers that we work with 12 hospitals in the state of Iowa that are, are cooperating with us for stroke research and, and being efficient in doing clinical trials. I think this is very important not only for the trials themselves, but also for the patients of Iowa because uh, a big issue with uh, living in a rural state like Iowa is that it's very difficult for patients to participate in clinical trials because we are so far from the academic centers and since this is a time-dependent problem, often patients in rural areas of the, of the state cannot participate in clinical trials, which I think is unfair. So hopefully this new network is going to increase availability for patients to participate in trials and we need more representation of rural populations in clinical trials so we know that the results apply to them as well. Yeah, sure. Sure. Wow. Well, we're coming to the end of this segment, but um, Dr. Howard, is there anything you would want to add to the discussion we've had so far? Well, I guess the other thing I was thinking about um, in, in terms of the work that we're doing over there at the University Hospital taking care of patients with epilepsy and stroke is the training mission. Um, the, the things that, that uh, Enrique and I are doing, we were taught to do. Uh, we're, we're trying to move the ball forward a little bit by making some advances, but the key is to have a well-trained cadre of doctors in the pipeline who are rigorously trained and do the right thing and are positioned to make new discoveries themselves, and the university has a key role in uh, creating that kind of training opportunity. Yeah. 
Well, I want to say thank you to all of you. Tammy Lansing, thank you so much for being here with us. And Dr. Uh, Enrique Leira, thank you. And uh, Dr. Matt Howard, pleasure to have you all here. Uh, this has been the second part of a four-part series on the language of the brain, and you're listening to World Canvas. I hope you can join us for the next program in which we'll be talking about the aging mind and brain. World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. So I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Good night. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on the Central Campus. The focus of this World Canvas series is the language of the brain. And in this segment, we're going to take a look at the aging mind and brain with two faculty members who are part of the UI's Aging Mind and Brain Initiative. Next to me is Bernd Fritsch from the University of Iowa Department of Biology, who is also the director of the Aging Mind and Brain Initiative. Thank you, Bernd, for being here. Thank you for having me here. Mm -hmm. Next to him is Rob Philibert, who is from the University of Iowa Department of Psychiatry. You are also part of this Aging Mind and Brain Initiative. I'm very glad to have you here. Well, thank you. Yes. Uh, so, Bernd, I think I'd like to start with you. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for writing a very interesting commentary that appeared a few days ago in uh, the paper. And um, um, we could talk about some of the themes you were addressing there relating to how long our brains might actually, under, under uh, the best conditions, function properly, well, maybe even past 100 years. Um, what are we learning about the brain as we age? Well, there are good news and there are bad news. The good news is some of us may actually have their brain still fully functioning when we are over 100. Others will not be as lucky. And uh, that depends in part on what your genetic predisposition is and how you live your life. Even if you have the best of your genetic predisposition, you will not last forever. But you can, make have, you can have your brain lasting for at least for a time over 100 years, provided you are taking care of it. But I mean when I say taking care of it is doing exercise for your mind all the time. Make sure that it is nimble, that it can adjust to the environment as it is. Challenge yourself occasionally so you are keeping your brain up and running, literally and figuratively speaking. Mm-hmm. Well, so when you, when you say that you need to challenge your brain, um, of course, in the first segment, we heard um, some discussion about how, how um, you know, the, the brain has this plasticity. Um, mm-hmm. Explain what plasticity is for us, please. So for me, plasticity is essentially how neurons, the individual cells within the brain, how they connect to each other and how they change these connections. So all of us are pretty much wired the same way uh, initially. But then as we learn something, this connection between the neurons is changing over time. So what I do right now when I talk, I literally take my hand, stick it in your brain, and change the wiring within your brain. When you leave here, you have learned something, and that means something in your brain has been changed forever, these connections. And that is really the part where you can work on. If you are not keeping your brain plasticity up and running, if you are not making sure that you're learning all the time something new, and you just let it sit for 40 years, then start from scratch to learn something, it might not work as well. Mm. If you keep your brain up and running continuously, your residual plasticity 
to build new connections and reinforce new connections, in other words, learning something will remain alive and well with you, mm -hmm. probably until you're fairly old. Mm -hmm. is, is there a point after, say, just choose a number, maybe 65 or 70 years, is there a point where a, a normal brain, um, even when someone is trying to stay engaged with life and so on, it, it just does begin to, what we might think of as slow down or become less resilient? Yes, there is something along that line, but what happens is you can really build on keeping it up and running for a long time, provided you're doing all these necessary exercises to keep your learning up. So think about it the following way. As we age, uh, there are two things that are happening. A number of the cells you have in your brain will be less. You are losing of the 80 billion neurons we all started with, you're ending up having fewer. Well, 80 billion is a huge number. So keep in mind that each one of these cells has on the average about 1,000 connections. Even if you lose, say, 10 billion neurons and maybe uh, 100 connections per neuron, you still have enough residual capacity provided you're keeping it alive and well and able to respond plastically to whatever new learning you want to do. Something, for example, is if you are age 65, start to challenge your brain and learning a new language. I can now switch to German or French, speak any one of the three languages I can, and then we can see how you can f function along that line. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of the things that many of us see in magazines or advertised on television, brain, brain quizzes. Um, yes. There are even new, new industries that have started around this notion yes. that we can keep our brains healthier as we get older. Lumosity would come to mind, for yes. example. It's a, a, uh, something you can access on the web under lumosity.com, where you can do training of your brain answering certain questions and keep the plasticity of your brain up and well. Mm -hmm. So you are ready to absorb new information as you age. Mm -hmm. Well then if we get to the point where we do begin to, to become perhaps a little, a little less, um, um, uh, what's the right word to use here? We begin to lose perhaps a little bit of that quick response or, or we can't remember some of the things that we thought we always knew. When that begins to happen and it's not yet diagnosed as something that might be as drastic as Alzheimer's disease, what some of us would call normal aging and you just begin to forget a few things. Is there such a thing as normal aging and should we, be, should we assume that we will forget some of what we once knew? So what we know is uh, the reactivity, the speed with which you can respond to new uh, stimuli from the environment is going down as you normally age. We know that if a person like me, I'm 66, should be multitasking right now, I would be challenged compared to somebody who's 23. So the prime of our brain is really when we are around 30. From there it is a slow decline with about a, a kind of a shrinking of the brain of about 0.5% in volume over the years starting at age 50. Uh, that means if you are 75, you don't have the brain of a 30-year-old anymore. But you can, with the residual capacity, still do a lot, provided you keep it up. And that is really the main part. It's the same thing if you think about your own body. Your body functioned much better when you were 20. If you are thinking about how you went up the stairs at age 65, <laughs> it's a different way of going up the stairs. You're not running it, you're not taking two steps at a time, but you still get up the stairs. It just takes you a little bit longer. And the same principle applies in principle for your learning capacity. Mm -hmm. You may not be as quick in picking up new things. It takes a little bit longer, but you can still do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
Well, Rob, let's come to you now. So you're in the field of psychiatry mm -hmm. and um, also interested in the aging mind, the aging brain. First of all, I'd like to, to talk about what we mean by the mind and what we mean by the brain. When does thinking come into this whole picture? We've been talking about an organ, but we haven't really talked about how it functions. Well, that, that's a very interesting question, and I really think the, I'll throw the question back there. How do we define the brain? And we have a brain-body dichotomy. Uh, classically from our Greek, uh, our inheritance of Greek literature. And I think that's where the fundamental flaw arises. You spoke earlier about normal aging. And I always say, we always say in psychiatry is, is normal? Well, normal is something I got a picture of in the textbook. I know what we observe. And there are two things we observe. Number one is, is that programs such as luminosity whereas they may have some benefit, and I, I do say may is, I think if they are going to have the impact we want them to have, we cannot separate the activity of the, of the brain from that of the rest of the body. In other words, a brain uh, above the neck cannot be healthy as long as the below the neck is not happy. Um, and the real question is, how do we, what are the strategies in which we uh, use to engage to, shall we say, increase productivity and quality of life? And I think that's a, a very interesting dialogue. And I think really starting at age 65, well, as we say in Iowa, I think that horse has already left the barn. <laughs> and really, the, if you're looking at the, uh, looking to preserve or to have the greatest function tomorrow, that battle started yesterday. And when we look at aging, and I'm not going to put in normal, I think, it is, I think I'll say is what do we observe in today's society? I would like to, to put in is, is what could we observe in our society? And I think with the appropriate investments in healthy living, as Bernd put out, throughout the life cycle, beginning in infancy, moving through adolescence, into young adulthood with diet, exercise, avoidance of substances, and engage in healthy, supportive relationships, that I think we could observe a new normal. If I just may add to that part, so the uh, Romans had it almost right. They talked about mensana incorpore sano, uh, which basically means uh, in a healthy mind is living in a healthy body. They got it only wrong in one specific component. We literally need to rephrase it in mensana in cerebro sano which means you need to have a normal brain in order to have a normal functioning mind. So that is really what we know. Um, I don't think anyone would volunteer to say, all right, if you want to really solve the issue how the mind can be independent from the brain, just take out my brain and see where my mind is. I don't think anyone would volunteer for that kind of surgery. If you think about it a little bit further, you asked before the question, what is happening when we are getting Alzheimer's disease, any one of these disease stages. What you're looking at is you're not losing your brain as such, but you're losing a number of neurons within your brain that ultimately are going below a threshold in your functionality that you are not having a normal functioning brain anymore, and thereby it affects your mind. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting what we're learning about Alzheimer's and other uh, forms of dementia, because as Bernd put out, there's a certain point where we say this is disease and this is normal. That's an artifact. 
function is a continuous variable. And what we're beginning to understand is Alzheimer's doesn't start when we're 50. It might start in our 20s and our 30s. And really the challenge to the academic community is to develop the tools to understand how, why some become ill and some stay well. Because in as much as I think is as much as promising the genetic technologies uh, may be in the next 10 to 15 years, it is still much cheaper and more effective to change our environments. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the way we have to proceed. And I think there are two ways in which we go forward in that part. One is looking at the genetic background that sets you up for being likely a, a healthy aging mind and brain or being a diseased state of mind and brain. The second part we can do is we can have very early diagnostic features. Some of them can be done nothing else but measuring the volume of your brain in a certain increment and then see how the shrinkage of your brain progresses within the normal parameters or beyond those normal parameters. So these are the kind of things we are looking at to capture you as early as possible to uh, do an intervention when there is still some ability to intervene with the progression. Mm -hmm. You've both mentioned diet as a component of a healthy life and something that will help us keep our brains um, uh, in better shape as we get older. Um, what, what is the right diet people should be following? Well, as uh, Bernd pointed out, that depends. And if you have certain genetic variants that predispose you to high levels of cholesterol, well, the diet for you is a little bit different than the diet for me. At the same time, as I think the what is important is as much as that there's genetic tournaments, what the diet does is that we all have uh, uh, genetic determinants that, to a certain extent, predict our future. But I always like to point out to people that the very same DNA in their hands is the DNA in their brain. And what the reason that your brain doesn't look like your hand is throughout your time in your mother's womb and subsequent after in your subsequent development through childhood is, is that the environment and other protein factors interacted with the genetic programming to have your the skin, the cells in your skin assume what we like to call a squamous or a, a muscle cell fate. Whereas I think we created some of the 80 to uh, what 80 billion neurons in the central nervous system as well as their supporting glia. So the real question here is, is what diet, what environmental regimen is best individual. And I think the, the challenge to the academic environment is to develop the tool sets uh, to both interrogate the genome and, of course, interrogate the environment as well. So one of the things many people may have heard about is that there are certain drugs out there which you can take to delay onset of aging. One of the drugs is, um, in particular when you like red wine, uh, is resveratrol. So the idea would be you drink your glass of red wine and you live for 120 years. Um, that is not as simple as such. Resveratrol in wine is just not enough to really prolong um, your longevity. And in, in addition, if you really look at when it really works is you need to eat a very fatty diet, something I wouldn't recommend to begin with. So if you do a, a, an animal test system, you can see Longevity of resveratrol is directly tied into the diet you are living on. High fat, it helps. Low fat, it doesn't. Since high fat diet would anyway uh, cause other problems with you, obesity and what comes with that part, definitely is not a recommended way to go and simply eat more fatty diet in order to have a reason to take resveratrol and drink more red wine. 
I wouldn't recommend that as a strategy. Now, since you talk about diet, one of the things we've learned over the last 10 years is one of the things people don't like to know is if you don't eat occasionally, i.e. going to what we call caloric restriction, you can actually rejuvenate to a certain extent your body and your mind. Uh, what, it, what it does, it, it challenges your entire cellular background to get into overdrive mode to clean up literally some of the debris that is uh, building up within the cells. That's as far as we understand it right now. So if you are slim and trim, even if you are slim and trim, you should occasionally go on a diet, very restricted diet. Mm -hmm. And would that be uh, a 24-hour period of no caloric intake, or you think two days a week, or, or? There are different tests that have been done. Some of the tests show if you are continuously on a restricted diet, you can ex in increase quite a bit your life expectancy. Um, others show even if you do it only twice a week, you can already have an impact. Hmm. But the verdict is still out, what is the minimal essential component you need to do? In other words, how often per week you need to go on the diet. I, for example, don't eat during the day. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Mm -hmm. So that's my permanent way of living. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's doing pretty well for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I will point out, so far, in normal education. And I, too, like most university faculty, don't have time to eat lunch. But the, uh, no, I think the, the, uh, the real question about um, uh, the best way to proceed on diets is, and I, and I think you have to have a healthy sense of skepticism. And, um, and I think the American public has really been burnt by excessive claims in the literature. You know, for instance, this diet versus that diet. And, uh, and I think this reiterates the need for involvement in the public in research, such as you know, the effects of diet on longevity, function, cardiovascular uh, health. Um, because you know, in all honesty, we really don't know the degree of certainty that we would like to when we make recommendations to people. When people come to the University of Iowa, they expect the only the highest standards from us. And in order to deliver that level of expertise, we really do need the, the public buy-in. And the real question is, how do we get it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we can go back to where we were before. You are, you are born with a certain genetic predisposition. If you are lucky and you have a certain set of mutations in a number of genes, you may be predisposed to uh, live to a very long and healthy life. Um, however, how your diet is interfering with those different genes, that part we don't really fully understand. Mm -hmm. We know these two uh, components, your predisposition and your diet, are interacting with each other and are compounding each other over your entire life. We can tell exactly what are things you shouldn't do. If you are a chain smoker, you know exactly what you're doing to yourself. If you're drinking every day a bottle of whiskey, you know what you're doing to yourself. Well, these are the easy parts. But then we go into the area, how to live a healthy life. That is not as clear because we don't know exactly how the 20,000 genes you carry with you that are driving the normal metabolism of your cells are interacting with your diet subroutine. Okay. So we can pick bits and pieces and correlate them with, on specific genetic backgrounds with the outcome, but we can't really go into the generalization yet. We just don't have enough data. Yeah. 
and you know, and the thing is, is and I think at the same time as we don't know, we I think I think it's important to what we uh, to emphasize what we do know. And the key thing is, is that moderate exercise each week, about 150 minutes, try to get the pulse up to above 160, and that's of course once you become acculturated to it. I wouldn't recommend doing it right off the bat. And I would sit there and try, try to accommodate the standards of you know fruits and vegetables and a restriction on the amount of fatty meats uh, in your diet. But it's always important to remember is you know over the course of time we've evolved along with our diets, and I, I doubt that any radical departures are going to give us the benefits. Uh, that we are so uh, uh, so hoping for, but at the, um, so I, I would sit there and say is try to keep it simple, try to keep it doable, and try to make it so that you enjoy it. Because remember, this is your life, and there's an old saying about the American Heart Association diet: "Oh, you may live five, uh, may not live five years longer, but it'll sure feel that way." <laughs> and uh, I think quality of life and the way we we uh, attack uh, healthcare is mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. So, if we um, notice a parent um, uh, who seems to be, oh, perhaps somewhat disoriented in a way that we don't remember them being five years before. Um, we, we, we might assume that that's because of advancing age. Um, at what point do you need to go to a doctor? And I mean, obviously, if you think the person is in danger or they, they might harm themselves or they've fallen down or something, you clearly go to a doctor. But if you just notice changes in an older person in your family and um, you're curious about what's going on, um, at what stage would a doctor be able to actually help you pinpoint uh, something like dementia? Well, I, I think the, the first thing, what is the first step in any time you, you are worried about someone? And I think the first thing is to engage with that person. Um, in the, the, I always like to tell people is, is that generally the, the, the cause of people's abnormal behavior is not uh, psychosis. It's just something's going on in their lives that we quite are not grasping right now. And a simple conversation will answer uh, most of our questions. And I think like most, uh, uh, most illnesses, they're best addressed in the context of family and community. Mm -hmm. And so if you have access to a physician, great. If you have access to a nurse or allied health professional, great. Psychologist, wonderful. But I think the, the key thing here is before you drag someone in for something that is very challenging to our sense of self, is that engage, strengthen the relationship so that individual knows that you are invested in their well-being and then engage in dialogue with a third party. I mean, the one thing we know of, if you are age 60 and you forget the name of somebody, that is not equalized, equal to you have Alzheimer's in the progressive state. There is a natural uh, part of that you are not as good as you were before to memorize everything. Mm -hmm. Where the threshold is, that will largely depend on how fast your memory declines. Mm -hmm. If you see a natural decline, then you wouldn't even notice that your mother, for example, is not as well as she used to be able to remember what happens. Mm -hmm. If you see an immediate change that is within a few weeks, at that point in time, alarm signs should come off. Mm -hmm. But if it's a gradual change which you hardly perceive, that could be just normal aging. Mm -hmm. 
And the things that you really should look for uh, in, in when you're, you're scanning for people's, if you're suspicious of dementia, the first thing you should always assess is orientation. In other words, does the person know exactly the context where they're at, not only at the, the University of Iowa, but they're in the old Senate chambers? Do they have a, a grasp of the date? In other words, can and give them plus or minus two days. Okay. And of course, one has to know one's personal characteristics. And more importantly is, is it fluctuating throughout the day? Um, those are the uh, two, of the uh, two or three of the more important sets of questions. And but once again, I always like to say is, is check, recheck. And remember, many things that uh, maybe appear to be Alzheimer's could just be the influence of, a, of an over-the-counter medication. <laughs> so uh, not all that uh, seems is all that always that alarming. Right. Let me give you a better example for how the gradualty could affect you. Let's go to a sensory system hearing. As we age, we are losing our sense of hearing. But we don't lose it in such a way that it just goes away. It's a gradual loss. It's a gradual loss where you start out at the high frequency end is going away. You still have normal conversation ability, but the higher frequency is going. And that is slowly but surely reaching the lower frequency end until you are hard of hearing. It's a gradual process. What it typically tells you is what happens in the ear that you lose the sensory cells that are converting sound into electric signal that your brain can understand. A similar thing happens if you wish in your brain. So it's a gradual decline in overall capacity, but you're not losing everything in one go unless it is pathological. Mm -hmm. Well, as we wrap up here, I, I mentioned that both of you are part of this um, cluster of researchers, scholars, academics at the University of Iowa who are part of the uh, Aging Brain, Mind and Brain Initiative. Um, what, what is your overall goal, like getting together this multidisciplinary group? So what we try to do is finding new innovative ways how to do an early diagnosis for early prevention of onset of, of aging mind uh, so we can have a, um, if you wish, a long-running, full-functioning brain until you are at the age of 70, 75. Mm -hmm. That would be the long-term goal. If you think about it, what will happen in the next 25 years in the state of Iowa and nationwide, People of my age class, I'm part of the baby boomers, will be uh, reaching the stage of 65 plus plus. At that point in time, all of the things we have not done right in our past will come back and uh, hit us. We try to be ahead of that um, wave of people who are coming in and didn't do the right thing in the, in the right genetic background to their mind and body to be functional until old age. Mm -hmm. That's really what we try to accomplish. Wow. Well, you know, like I said, as in, in my portion of the venture, is very, my laboratory is involved in making um, molecular tools to better detect some of these uh, aspects of the environment in which we can prevent um, the onset of, uh, shall we say, premature aging. And I think the, the most importantly is, is that there's a lot of other nice pieces that the university is assembling. And I think uh, the public would enjoy uh, looking at the AMB website uh, that's hosted by the University of Iowa and see not only what we're doing here, but also how they could join us. Yeah, wonderful. Well, gosh, thank you. This has been so interesting, uh, Dr. Baron. 
Fitch and uh, Dr. Rob Philbert. Thank you both so much. And you've been uh, listening to a discussion of the aging mind and brain. And uh, this is World Canvas. This is part three of a four-part series on the language of the brain. And I'm very happy you could join us for this. All of the uh, series will be available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, international.uiowa.edu. I'm Jen Kerr. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. Good night. Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We're in the center chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on the central campus and glad to have so many of you with us this afternoon. Uh, this is the fourth program in a four-part series on the language of the brain. We've been covering a lot of territory in uh, the earlier parts of this series and in this final program we're going to take a look at a slightly different approach, talk about the field of artificial intelligence. Our very special guest is Karim Abdel-Malik, director of the University of Iowa Center for Computer-Aided Design. And I'm so happy to have you here, Karim. Thank you very much, sir. Oh, no, it's a real pleasure. And, and there's so much to talk about here. And, and all of it is really quite foreign to me. So, um, so I'm going to ask you very basic questions. You can help me understand what artificial intelligence actually is. Sure. Um, so it's defined as uh, any software or machine that exhibits intelligence. So it's software or machine that exhibits intelligence. Give an idea or a couple examples. Um, you go to a bank and you want to withdraw some money, you put your card in that machine in the back that uh, decides of what to give you, why, and checks your security and so on, has some sort of program inside. Another example is that camera uh, that she's using right now. It used to be that you would have to adjust um, the focus, you would have to adjust uh, the aperture and so on, so many parameters. Well, today there's a little program in there that um, does all that for you. This is at the very, very basic level. At the higher level, it would be a robotic uh, person that walks inside the room and says, hello, and how are you, and can talk with you. That would be the other uh, side of intelligence. A software, so that would be hardware. A software would be, um, you, you know, chess is well known as a intellectual game. And you know a few years ago that IBM built this incredible computer software that has actually beaten a, uh, the best chess player in the world, a, a Russian person. So it's all of this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and so when, when was the earliest development of what we think of as artificial intelligence? People say about 80 years ago or so. Yeah, wow. So. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. And so you're in charge of the Center for Com Computer Aided Design and you're teaching students every year. Um, let's just get a brief look at what you do here. What are some of the things we're doing at Iowa? We have uh, seven units uh, within the Center for Computer Aided Design. It's called CCAT for short. And one of those units is um, at the airport here in Iowa City. Uh, we have uh, jets, we have two jets, a helicopter, and we study the cognitive war fighter load. So as a, as a pilot, uh, a war fighter is engaged uh, in a battle and they have communications with uh, the command, they have avionics, they have all sorts of information coming to them. They have to make decisions very, very quickly, split of second. So what we do, is come up with programs, intelligence, that would enable them to make decisions much, much faster. Another program is called the Virtual Soldier Research. And that's all about creating a virtual person inside a computer that's able to think, test things for you inside the virtual world. So you're creating a tank, you're creating a weapon, you're creating whatever it is. It's all inside a computer. You want to send that virtual person to test the, these things for you. 
A third program would be robotic uh, things. For example, uh, we've been successful at creating limbs. As you know, you know because of the wars, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, there's been a lot of amputees. And nowadays, uh, the technology allows you to replace uh, a, a missing limb with a prosthetic one. It's mechanical. However, it's controlled by the brain. So we interrupt the brain waves. It goes through the arm. We check for the neurons, uh, signals, and then we provide that power to uh, the robotic arm. Uh, let me mention one more, uh -huh. uh, which is still under the center. And this is all about, um, you've heard about 3D printing, where you can create uh, a plastic part or by basically it's, it's a machine that brings some material and you layer the material, you create a part. That technology is very, very well established. Uh, what we're trying to do here, and so, so is many other uh, centers around the US, um, I'd say about six or seven, but what we've been very successful here at Iowa is to recreate skin. So using that 3D printing, uh, we get stem cells, we work with the doctors to get that. So it's our engineers, the doctors all together, and you're able to print uh, for people who have lost a lot of skin because of burn or anything else, you're able to recreate this. It's not artificial intelligence yet, but what if soon we're able to recreate an organ? And then after that, you know, I, I'm hoping I get another brain at some point. <laughs> so I ordered one already. How is it possible, though, to use a 3D printer to create new skin? I, I, I don't understand. Who would even think of such a thing? It, it, there's a lot of effort at uh, stem cell, and, and that's an area, I, I, it's not my area at all. Um, but I know they are able to harvest uh, those. They're, you know, it's just very similar to harvesting uh, skin graft mm -hmm. and put it somewhere else. I, I think that technology is coming about incredibly yeah. fast. Um, yeah. If you talk about AI in general, I, you know, I, I can tell you, I've told you what, where we are today. Sure. And let, let me tell you what, and maybe some of you have heard this already. Um, so you know Google, yeah. a very large company, very successful. They, uh, uh, today you sit at a computer and you're able to type something and you Google that thing. So the chief engineer at Google, and, and many of us believe this, and so I'm gonna tell you that because I, I think it's very powerful. Um, the chief engineer at Google said that in five years, you will be able to do this. You just <laughs> think and you Google. So I just Googled Joan Kai. <laughs> so no connection to computers. It's just immediate uh, connection to, between you to a computer. This is five years from today. What they also said is that in 2045, and this, this, if you haven't heard this before, it's, it may be a shocker for you, but what they said is that 2045, in year 2045, we shall become immortal. That means your brain will continue to uh, grow and uh, flourish uh, in a different light. And so let me explain that a little bit. You know everybody has a phone. And so here, here's my phone. I, I don't remember my wife, she's here by the way, so I don't remember her number. So I, I put it in, inside the machine. Um, somebody else gives me a phone number, I put it in here. Slowly, I'm loading this machine. I, I don't remember these numbers anymore, but it does. So imagine if you had a million of those, just a million, access to a supercomputer that has a million CPU like this. And the memory that's inside, the hard disk, you know, 50 million times that hard disk. That's all coming. Imagine now that you've loaded this with so much information, including you. That means it knows your character. 
It knows what you like, what you don't like. You basically unloaded your brain into a computer. Google believes they can do this. In fact, I'll go a little extra. There are three centers around the US where you can present yourself and they will take 3D pictures of you. So you stand there, the camera goes around, takes 3D pictures of you, all of a sudden you show up on a computer, but you're just a body. It's your body on the computer, every little detail of you. Then you go another place and you speak. You start talking so it recognizes your voice. Um, then, it, then the computer starts asking you questions. What's your favorite color? Where were you born? How old are you? Thousands of questions. All of a sudden the computer understands. The computer starts thinking. It kind of adapts your brain. And so that's, that's the artificial intelligence that's coming. And what Google is, is promising is that by 2045, your entire brain is going to be uploaded somewhere. And it will continue to live. And it says, this is Google, it's not me. I believe in it, but that's, that's who's saying it. Um, they're saying that um, our bodies are just transient. So your character, your brain, your psychology, all of you is now on the computer and will continue to live. Until that computer crashes, and, <laughs> then, and, then, and then it's all bad. <laughs> yeah. So it brings a lot of issues, you know, ethics, yeah. security, um, yeah. you name it. Yeah, so what are the ethical issues that, with the things that you're currently working on, I'm sure that all the time you're thinking about mm, something that could go, uh, if, if a certain ability were in the hands of the wrong people, uh, as we classify the wrong people, you know, yeah. um, they, could, they could do something that would harm populations. I mean, what kinds of ethical um, uh, problems have arisen in your own thinking about the work you're doing? It's, it's a very good question, okay. you know, and everybody's different. Sure. Um, my thinking is that you, science is very important and that you have to pursue to the maximum there is. So you know, let, let's talk about that example with um, uploading your brain to a yeah. computer and with the thought that the risk that somebody's going to um, hack into it mm -hmm. or will send you a bug to a computer and, and uh, mess it up. Mm -hmm. um, to me, it's, it's very similar to saying, let's not build a plane because it may fall someday. Well, mm -hmm. that's true, mm -hmm. and that we have to build around it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so from my perspective, it's just me, everybody has their own, there's certainly two different views on this. In my mind, we just charge forward and yeah. we pursue what we think would help people. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that, that extreme, which is 2045, mm -hmm. um, is one extreme. To get there, I think there's tremendous help that computers can provide uh, to medicine, to health. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think of um, artificial hearts that now have software that recognize you, your physiology. They, you know, they activate your heart just for you. Mm -hmm. um, we were involved in a project with a big company in Minnesota called Medtronic, a very large company that does uh, medical devices. And that particular device we, we worked with is something you, you plant underneath your uh, skin in the waist area, and the leads go up all the way to the cervical spine, all, all the way up here, and it pumps some electricity into your spine, inside your spine. And what that has done is solved 62% of chronic back pain. <laughs> so little, little software, little device, but look what the effect has been. Mm -hmm. And so it, I just think that that whole technology is coming about in force, and it, it, 
it's just here. Yeah. It's here and we have to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, some, some might fear or have feared in the past that, um, you know, computers could become so powerful, they'd take over the world, really. And we all know 2001 Space Odyssey yeah. and how, you know, refuses to do what they wants him to do. And, you know, um, and that's how many years ago now, 50 years ago, maybe, for that film. So, um, is this ability of, of these, these supercomputing machines to, to think like individuals, is it something we need to be worried about? I think so. I, I think, I mean, I, I can point to several projects that uh, computers have taken over. Um, are we scared that the computers will start communicating with each other and take over the world and uh, um, be a force of bad and, mm -hmm. and so on? I, I would say yes or no. My, my personal view is no. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I just don't think that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, you worry, you worry about bugs and viruses and mm -hmm. you know terrorist activities and so on, but I, I just doubt that to some point that um, the brain of a computer is going to be better than what we can do to the computer. Yeah. I, I just don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. And and is there? Right now, is it still necessary for, at some level, for an individual human being to be involved in setting computers on their way? I mean, do we, do we need to have, um, is there human intervention that we might not see, but that's always going on? Uh, I mean, maybe not in the, in the ATM machine. I mean, that's reading your card and doing whatever, and there's no individual watching it, but, um, yeah. I, could you imagine a time when, when humans won't be actively managing these machines? Um, I, I can tell you I visited a um, company in Japan yeah. that has, um, my, my background is robotics, so I, I work a lot in that area. I visited a company in Japan that had, uh, they, they make something, it, it's a manufacturing environment, and they had robots um, in the entire factory. So I, they had one room that had about five people, big factory, all robots, all robotic arms. It's not robots that walk, it's, it's just robotic arms that take things, make things, weld things, and so on. Here's what was amazing. When one of them went, went, went down, another robot went to fix it. <laughs> and, it, it and it was just, <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. it, it, it was cool to see, and this yeah. was a few years back. Yeah, so, wow. Well, so, so help us understand what virtual reality is. Virtual reality is, uh, is a field that allows uh, us as humans to live in a different world uh, that may or may not exist. And so, um, to give you a simple example, we, we work with the military quite a bit, and they make a tank. They make tank designs. Um, every few years, they make a new tank design. Car companies, they make a car, a new car, and an assembly line for that car every year. Um, the design of that car is all happening inside the virtual world, right? It, you, we don't do tests anymore as, as engineering folks. You, you want to do a stress test, you actually design it on a computer, you model it on a computer, and then you affect stress on it and you see what happens. All inside the computer, before it's made. Hmm. Before it's made. So to give you an idea, the tank that I was talking about takes about 10 to 15 years to make. That's the first tank. We're not ordering 500, we're just ordering one. So the first, what we call a prototype, 15 years. And it takes two to three billion dollars, would it be? Two to three billion dollars, 10 to 15 years. And most of the work uh, and the, the cost is that we have to make the tank, send it on the hill, test it, 
uh, drive it fast, and, and so on. Except for all the engineering. Now, you know, the thermal stuff, the uh, what we call aerodynamics, the stress test, all that inside the computer. We want to send a virtual person, instead of actually making it, so we want to reduce that time, we want to send a virtual person inside to test these for you. That's what we call virtual reality. We create this human, and it's the, the tank is inside a computer. You send the human, in our case it's called Santos, you're all welcome to come and visit by the way. Um, Santos goes out, we, we, we say, hey Santos, um, drive this car or this tank at 40 miles an hour. How do you feel? Uh, can you reach this? And Santos, the virtual person, starts reaching. He tells you, ah, you know, I, I don't feel very good. Okay, Santos, carry this box. Today, you are an 18-year-old kid, uh, a Marine, and you, your weight is this much, your height is this much. This box is 80 pounds. Go ahead and try to do it. And Santos goes and tries to carry the box. And, ah, sorry, I can't do this. My stress on L4 in the spine is higher than I can do. Don't ask me to do that. And so that's one aspect of virtual reality. The other one that we were very involved in, we have a facility here at, at Iowa, uh, and again, public is invited to come and visit. You wear 3D glasses. So this is the opposite. This is instead of us sending a virtual person into the computer, this is us becoming in the virtual world. So you stand in front of a big screen, and the big screen has things that float because you wear 3D glasses. If you've seen the Avatar 3D, Avatar 3D movie, very, very similar, except that it's interactive. So you walk into the screen and things start floating at you. And so let's say a, um, a car shows up. It's in middle space. You, you, you're wearing 3D gloves. You grab the car and you open the door. Now you walk into the car. It doesn't exist. It's virtual. That's what virtual reality is. Wow, how do you teach this to your students? It's, it's, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? What, uh, and I imagine the, the students who come into to this field may have already, um, uh, they might be experts at playing video games and so on, doing, yeah. doing a lot of things that involve sort of pretend universes out there. Does that help them uh, come into this field, do you think? Is it a useful skill? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it helps with the uh, eye motion yeah. coordination. Yeah. It understands, you know, the, Kids today um, understand the 3D depth yeah. much more, what we call spatial relationship, you know, where, where are things in respect to other things in 3D, uh, very powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them have already in school um, got into the programming aspect, yeah. you know, whether it's artificial intelligence or virtual reality or any of the programming aspects, they get into, they get into this very, very early. Mm -hmm. What's missing, which I, I think needs to be addressed, maybe I never show, mm -hmm. is the level of math properly. All of this, everything I'm talking about, everything, really comes down at the end of the day, it's math, physics, you know, the basic sciences that are, mm -hmm. that are, uh, I, I think the preparations are not just quite there. Right, right, right. Huh. So, um, Within the larger world, just moving on beyond the University of Iowa and what we're doing here, what do you think, this, this Google stuff was incredible, but what are some of the other things we should be expecting to see or uh, some of the things that excite you most about what we're learning? I think, I, you know, the, the field of robotics, artificial intelligence, virtual reality also, has been more promises than delivery for many, many years. Hmm. Um, you, and the, the reason is you go to a movie and, and it portrays so much more than what we have. Hmm. A, a reminder of this is how they sent the first person to the moon yeah. in stories before we actually went there. Very similar now, but I do believe that at this point, um, 
all of these very intelligent things are coming about very strongly. Mm -hmm. You can go to a, um, even a Target and you find a, uh, I think it's called a Roomba, yeah. which is a, a robotic device, very inexpensive, that cleans your carpet. It just does it all day long and uh, doesn't get tired. Um, <laughs> it's a few hundred dollars. You, you program it and you say, hey, I want you know these four or five, it's very efficient, it doesn't complain, it, um, it doesn't, you know, you don't have to feed it anything. It just, it's, and this is a sample, sample. I, I remember another example I went to, uh, um, this is seven years ago, so I don't know where they are now. I haven't followed that. But I went to a hospital that had robotics in it, mm -hmm. intelligent robots. And, you know, to go from one room to another to offer the medication is, um, is the function of one of those robots. It's like a cabinet that had wheels, that had little eyes, cameras. It understands where the walls are. So of course, I'm a, you know, gonna try it out. So I went and stood in front of it as it was walking. It sto stopped, excuse me, and it went around me. And, it, and I went to a room and it, to deliver the medication, uh, it had many drawers and it understands that room is this patient. It checks, it reads, it opens the door and it serves the medication. Mm -hmm. Amazing. This was seven years ago. I can't imagine what's coming now. Yeah. I'm involved heavily. Uh, that's another another one that you know people may be interested in. Mm -hmm. Very heavily with the uh, military design of um, new stuff. Uh, that are multiple efforts. Uh, the one that we just came back from last week is in uh, Tampa. It's the uh, United States uh, Special Operations Command, U.S. SOCOM. And there, the, the uh, Admiral, I think he's a first star, one star Admiral, uh, wants to design a suit uh, for the special ops. You, you know, it's, those guys are just amazing. They, they're the ones that went, got the lab, and they're just very special, you know, special projects, um, very highly trained. So what they have now a mandate for is to build a suit that is incredibly strong just incredibly strong. The, the mandate for that is that the person walks into the room and even if they're sprayed with a, um, small arms, AK-47, nothing happens to them. <laughs> just this, this, this. Second, which is amazing, to run, to be able to run at 22 miles an hour. That's a little faster than Usain Bolt. That's an incredibly fast suit. So to do this, they're designing these uh, exoskeletons, which are mounted, you know, exoskeleton is a, Exoskeleton is a robotic device that kind of embraces the body. Um, and so you're trying to lift something. The device knows, hey, lift, so it makes your arm stronger, and it, you're able to lift 400 pounds instead of 100. And, uh, the third thing that they want, this, the, the suit, it's called Talos, if you want to Google it. They, they have something about it, T-A-L-O-S, Talos. Tactical Arm Light Vest, something. <laughs> um, so Thales, uh, the third one is that they're able to walk with it underwater about two feet below. So the body would be six feet under. All of this with all this equipment, gear, you know, armor, uh, speed, motors to power you, just an incredible task. Um, Wow. Just uh, amazing stuff, I think. Yeah. Will, will the UI be involved in that research? Or? We have been involved initially. Uh, we're hoping to be much more involved. Mm. 
remains to be seen. But we, wow. you know, they're called us, which is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, and also it's easy to see the, the immediate benefits of some of the you know robotic limbs and so on that you mentioned. Uh, what, a, what a gift to people or someone with intense back pain and now yes. they don't have it anymore. It's incredible. Yeah, you're doing fascinating work, Kareem. I'm so uh, glad you would come you. and talk with us about it. And I think we need sort of regular updates on this because what uh, you've told us today is already pretty stunning. So I've uh, been listening to Kareem Abdel-Malik, who's the head of the Computer-Aided Design uh, Center here at the University of Iowa, engineering professor and so on. And um, this is the fourth uh, part of a four-part series on the language of the brain. I hope you've enjoyed uh, each part of this program. Uh, you can find all of it on uh, UITV, on iTunes, on uh, YouTube, and uh, also at the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr. Thanks for being with us, and please join us for the next World Canvas. Good night. <laughs>